As we remain standing now, we, we turn to the message which comes from Ephesians chapter 1. If you have your copy of the Word with you, I encourage you to take it up and to follow along. Hear now the Word of the Lord from Ephesians chapter 1, verse, verses 3 through 14, which I think is an extension of what's in your liturgy. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made known, made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory." In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were healed with the Holy Spirit, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious and most loving Father in heaven, as we continue to peer into the doctrine of our union with Christ, we are once again confronted with your power and glory and filled with awe and wonder as profound mysteries are revealed to us so concisely in your holy word. How often we speak of your sovereign election, but we confess that we too often fail to know the comfort and understand the necessity of this foundational truth and see the glory of your purposes in this covenantal union established in your eternal decree. We pray for the grace and power of the Holy Spirit to now attend the preaching and the hearing of your word. Grant us attentive and receptive hearts. Grow and equip us in this beautiful and beauty-filled gospel life and conform us more and more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this we pray in His name. Amen. You may be seated. What a passage. What a passage there. There is a glorious richness and depth and glory and wonder to the church's union with Christ. It is, in a very real respect, the focus of our whole understanding of the history of redemption revealed in Scripture. 
from the beginning and even from before the very beginning of time all the way to the unbound reaching of eschatological eternity, we find various aspects of our union with Christ. And this morning, as many of you have already guessed, we will begin with before the beginning, before the foundation of the world, as the Apostle put it. Our goal this morning is to see the glory of our great God's electing purposes in Christ. And as we ponder this great truth, to then yield up our doxological praises to the riches of the glory of His grace in Christ Jesus, and so bring our reasonable worship before the One who alone is worthy. As we come to this text, we must acknowledge that we are a curious people, are we not? Are we not just filled with curiosity? We want to know more. Even some of our earliest conversations as toddlers are centered around the question, why? Parents, this will be very familiar to you. I am blessed to be often in the presence of grandchildren who remind me of our curious nature. Why are you doing that? Why are you putting those shoes on? Why are you leaving? And my personal favorite, why are you here? Well, given our curious natures, it is to be expected then that as we come to terms with the doctrine of election, we at some point ask the question, why would a perfectly holy God choose me, someone who is so unworthy? This is one of the first questions we wrestle with, especially as new believers, but the dilemma doesn't disappear the longer that you are a Christian. The reality remains the same. We really are awful, wretched, weak sinners. We have done things we wish we could forget, things we are ashamed to own up to. We can at times feel physically repulsed by our spiritual shortcomings, and so it would be understandable if we return to this question over and over. Why me? Why would God choose me? And even how does He accomplish this choosing? The answers to these questions are found in the doctrine of our union with Christ. Before we get to that, though, perhaps there is a theological hurdle for some to get over. The very fact that God is the one who does the choosing course, this brings us to the subject of predestination, or perhaps more accurately, since we are speaking in terms of salvation, election. It was R.C. Sproul who accurately describes the feelings most people have toward the concept. He writes, the very word predestination has an ominous ring to it. It is linked to the despairing notion of fatalism and somehow suggests that within its pale, we are reduced to meaningless puppets. The word conjures up visions of a diabolical deity who plays capricious games with our lives, end quote. And sadly, this is what many people think about God's sovereign work and electing prerogative. It's a hard truth to come to terms with. 
But such a fatalistic and view tragically eclipses the beauty of God's work for undeserving and incapable sinners in the gospel. In its most extreme forms, it can cause people to despise their gracious creator. It can even undermine the truth and the glory of the gospel that we proclaim. Now, we will not fully explore the breadth of this important doctrine this morning, but it is important for us to note a few things, especially since predestination is inseparable from our union with Christ. And so I want to make three observations about this doctrine and then, and then return to the why and the how questions. First, the doctrine is thoroughly biblical. This should seem evident enough as it is clearly spelled out in our passage here from Ephesians 1. And this, rest assured, is not the only place we run up against this concept in Scripture. But in verse 11, Paul writes quite clearly that we have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. In Romans 8, 29, and 30, we read, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. The Ephesians and Roman passages are places in which these theological terms are used explicitly. They're, they're just right out there, and we have to come to terms with them. But if we broaden our scope just a little bit and also pick up allusions to themes of choosing and predetermining and an election, the list, the list gets much longer. We all likely know someone, or even we ourselves, held at one time to a false notion of predestination. All true Christians, all true believers who grew up in the church, have some, some concept of predestination. But this false notion that we ran into is something according, you know, think of this as a Calvinistic um, concept, that it was some madman named John Calvin who first came up with this notion, and that it couldn't be further from the truth. Indeed, Catholics and Lutherans and Methodists all hold to different nuances of predestination, but even then the most common view is not the biblical one. That is, while God does choose some to salvation, He does so based on foreseen faith, this view that God was able to look down the corridors of time and see everyone who would, if presented the opportunity, respond to the gospel in faith. Those who would respond in faith, God then elects to everlasting life, but here's where we need to stop and see that this effectively makes our choice the foundation of God's election. It essentially puts us over and above God. As such, we see that this is clearly not what the Bible teaches. It is not the biblical doctrine. It falls short of what has been revealed in His Word. The creature is not greater than the Creator nor can the creature thwart 
the Creator's will. To those that would argue for that view, I would respond that it does not square with the rest of the biblical testimony regarding who God is and that those who hold to it are missing the scope and size of this predestination, this doctrine. And it is a big doctrine. By that, I mean several things. It is big in the sense that there is a lot at stake, even our salvation. But the doctrine also deals with a big topic, the sovereignty of God. Or to put it another way, election is a big deal because it deals with the bigness of God. Our confession gives us a great description of what God's sovereignty is all about. God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably ordains whatever, whatsoever comes to pass. Chapter 3, verse, paragraph 1. This sweeping statement in the confession accurately begins to capture the bigness of our God, all in reference to predestination. And this second point on His bigness, and we see as we're looking even at this confessional statement here, it, it first captures His bigness in terms of of the words, from all eternity. There never was a moment that God wasn't in control. And secondly, in terms of necessity, freely. The word freely is used. No one forces God to do anything. Thirdly, in terms of permanence, unchangeably is the word the confession uses, Nothing can thwart God's plan or cause it to take a detour. And fourthly, in terms of scope, whatsoever comes to pass. In other words, if it happened, it is because God ordained it to happen. If we lose sight of God's bigness, if we undermine the largeness of our God, we lose God. If God is not sovereign, He is not God at all. If something can be decided or determined apart from, outside of, or before God, then that means there is something greater than God. And if something is greater than God, then God isn't God. We have to think about these things. Why would you want to choose salvation in Jesus for yourself when it would mean putting your eternal destiny in the hands of a God who has less power than you. How often have we strived in our flesh to accomplish something only to see that we are too weak to accomplish it? The main concern for some people is that if we acknowledge God's sovereignty, then we are, we are somehow giving away our own freedom. But this is a false dilemma and it need not be so. Lorraine Bettner writes, The true solution to this difficult question, respecting the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man, is not to be found in the denial of either, but rather in such reconciliation as gives full weight to each, yet which assigns a preeminence to the divine sovereignty corresponding to the infinite exaltation of the Creator above, above 
the sinful creature. We, there's a preeminence in God's freedom there. The same God who has ordained whatsoever comes to pass has also ordained our freedom. We can both be free. He is just freer, as it were. As a father and a child are both free, yet the father's freedom outweighs the child, so too does God give his creature freedom within his own freedom. We are finite and limited in our freedom while God's is infinite and unlimited. And I know this is an intellectual exercise. This is an exercise in logic. And we have to take what is revealed in God's Word. And much more could be said here. But this we'll need to do for now. And this brings us to the third thing regarding predestination. Not only is it a biblical doctrine and, and a big doctrine... But it's also a beautiful, it's a beautiful doctrine. It is often caricatured as nothing more than a cold and lifeless arbitrary act. But what does Paul say here in Ephesians 1? That it was in love he predestined us, verse 4. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Thus we see that election is based on affection. God's love for us is His motivation for Him to ordain us to everlasting life. This is a beautiful truth and should move us to praise, even as it does Paul here in verse 3, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When properly understood, election teaches us not just about how great God is, but about how good He is, how loving He is. He is a sovereign God, and He's a saving God, and He is a loving God. Some might tend to pit John's God as love, 1 John 4, 16, against Paul's predestination, but these two go hand in hand. If God were not love, we would be lost. While we were yet sinners, God loved us. God chose us. God's love is the fountainhead of the gospel. God's Son did not come into the world to persuade the Father to love or to win His love for us. He came as the gift of the Father's love to us. <coughs> the Bible never makes election a matter of speculation or introspection, but it does present it as a chief reason for praise and confidence in His grace. Sinners are never told to ascertain their election before being converted. They're told to come to Christ. This is beautiful. This is comforting. And as we ponder this doctrine in all humility, we find grounds for our security and peace. And we come to understand, if only in some small part, the depth of God's love for us. And so this then brings us back to our initial question. Why? Why would God choose me? How can it be that if faced with the option, I would not choose God, who is only all good all the time, and yet He would choose me, even though I am a filthy sinner? If the pervading principle of making a good choice is choosing that which is good, then why would God choose me? He is perfectly good. And quite simply, 
It is for His glory. In verse 6, Paul puts it this way in our passage. He chose us to the praise of the glory of His grace. This is not the first time Scripture presents to us a God who seems to make difficult to comprehend decisions. His ways are not our ways. They are much higher than ours. And in many ways, the opening of Ephesians reflects a familiar text from Deuteronomy 7 regarding God's choice of the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 7, beginning at verse 6, we read, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all people, but because the Lord loves you and because He would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Do you see the similarities between these two passages? While it's implicit in Ephesians, Deuteronomy draws out clearly why God's electing choice seems odd. Because Israel was the least of all people. There was nothing particularly impressive about this band of Hebrews, just as there is nothing impressive about a band of wretched sinners. Yet God saves, both passages tell us, out of love, for the sake of sanctification, and ultimately to glorify Himself. God's will is to claim a people for Himself who would be holy and without blame. Verse 4, a people who are markedly different from the rest of the world, defined by virtue and not vice. Think about it. What better way to display His own power and might and glory than to take this band, this group of wretched sinners, and to transform them into His saints? Our God is glorified in all of His attributes. Why is there sin? One of His great attributes is mercy. And in that attribute, He shows mercy to we who are sinners. If we think there is something worthwhile in us that caused God to choose us, then we have completely missed the point. God chose us for the praise of His grace. If there was something in us that earned salvation, it would not be grace at all. And, you know, and this brings to, to mind Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, does it not? But once we realize there is nothing in us that makes, makes us a fitting choice for God, not only do we see God's grace, but we see God's glorious grace or the glory of His grace it all must go back to Him. God's choice magnifies His glory and diminishes our pride. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in His presence. 
No one should glory or boast before the Lord to whom all glory rightly belongs. So we have seen thus far that God does the choosing and He does this for His own glory's sake. How then, how then does He accomplish this? All of this work has been done in Christ. These few words from Him, in these few words from Paul in Ephesians 1, they open the door to the grandest concepts of salvation that Scripture reveals to us. When Paul tells us that this choosing took place before the foundation of the world, he sends us into the marvelous and mysterious eternal counsels of the Godhead. More specifically, Paul refers to what theologians call the covenant of redemption. And we need to remember a covenant is a binding agreement between two or more parties. And the covenant of redemption teaches us that the Trinity made a binding agreement before time began that the Father would send a Son equipped by the Spirit who would redeem His elect. While this might sound speculative and perhaps a bit heady, the covenant of redemption can be understood simply by stating it this way. Christ came to this world with a purpose. He had an agenda. He had in mind a particular people to save. The redemption of sinners was not wishful thinking on His part, nor were the saved selected by lottery. Jesus speaks of this intention in John 17 in His high priestly prayer. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son also may glorify You as You have given Him authority over all flesh that He should give eternal life to as many as You have chosen, as many as You have given Him. And this is eternal life that they may know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I have glorified You on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus came to give eternal life to all whom the Father had given him. This is the mission Jesus was on, as he says, the work which you have given me to do. Paul's words in the opening of Ephesians fill in the picture of what Jesus is referring to here. Namely, that to be chosen in Christ means to be a part of the eternal will of the Trinity for the redemption of mankind. And so let's ponder that for a moment. It's a breathtaking thought. Before you heard and knew the gospel... Before you were able to speak, before you could walk, before you were born, before you were conceived, before your parents' generation and their parents' generation, before every significant moment in history, before time itself, you were a part of God's will. The triune God covenanted a plan of redemption that the Father would save you by sending His Son in the power of the Spirit. From before the foundation of the world, God set His perfect love, an intimate and all-knowing love, upon you 
This is not a doctrine that puffs up. It is not a doctrine that leads to pride when we truly consider it. It is humbling. Even through all eternity, God was contemplating us, but He was always contemplating us in Christ. And if it weren't for that qualification in Christ, I believe it would be a terrifying thought. But thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father's love was toward us because His love has always been toward us in His Son. Wilhelmus Abrakel notes, Love moved the Father and love moved the Lord Jesus. It is a covenant of love between those whose love proceeds within themselves without there being any lovableness in the object of this love. That's us, that unlovable creature, and yet He loved us. God was thinking of us, not in and of ourselves, and certainly not in and of our sin, but truly in and of His Son. We are in His Son in the sense that we were the people given to His Son. He came to earth to represent us. He came to earth for us. Jesus came to save His body, His bride, the church, the people whom He has been united to and appointed to represent since all eternity. And yet there's still a mystery. There is a right and proper sense in which we must say that we are not united to Christ until we put our faith in Him. That is, without faith we have no spirit to draw us into Christ. The Shorter Catechism teaches us that the Spirit applies the saving benefits of redemption to us by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ. But there is another sense in which it is right to say we have always, always been united to Christ. By means of representing us in our fallen state and our poor condition, we have been united to Christ ever since God chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. Even before coming to earth in the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity was already standing in our place and representing us in the eternal counsels of the Godhead. <clears throat> Out of our election in Christ flow all the blessings God has for us. Blessings for good and not for evil. Blessings that fulfill His perfect will for His people and His creation. In Christ we have redemption through His blood. In Christ the riches of His grace abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. In Christ He makes known to us the mystery of His will. In Christ He is gathering together all things in one, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance. God does all these things we see in verses 7 through 12 and so much more that we who trust in Him, and this is the reason, that we who trust in Him should be to the praise of His glory. But we will never properly understand the doctrine of election if we don't take to heart those two precious words in Him. Apart from the union with Christ, election would make no sense and could truly never have taken place. If God would not love us in His Son, He could not love us at all. 
So that is why we consider this top, as we consider this topic, we must always do so with an eye to Christ. It was Calvin who wisely stated, we shall not find assurance of our election in ourselves, and not even in God the Father, if we conceive Him as severed from His Son. Christ, then, is the mirror wherein we must, and without self-deception, may contemplate our own election, end quote. Election doesn't need to be an intimidating or offensive topic. God's choice is not arbitrary, cold, cruel, or foolish. God still abides by that basic principle of choosing. He chose what was best because He chose His Son. True, there is no lovableness in us, but when God set His affection on us, He did so by selecting us in His Son, His beloved Son, with whom He is well pleased. And that makes us beloved. That makes us beloved sons, for what He saw in us was everything that Christ would one day do for us. And this is what it means to be chosen in Christ. This is what it means to have an identity that is found in Christ and not in ourselves. How often we try to find our worth in our own accomplishments and the trophies on the shelf, the likes we get on Facebook, our strengths, our smarts, our looks, and how often we end up disappointed in those things. Why? Because the identity gospel is a lie. None of these things gives us a true and lasting sense of value and worth. We can never accomplish enough, win enough, be popular enough, or attractive enough, or whatever. These things can never confer upon us a sense that we are intrinsically and eternally valuable. The gospel sweeps away all those feeble, anemic attempts to find worth within ourselves and in our own works when it announces the news that the God of the universe freely sought us out, set His heart on us in love, and chose us. The sinner's coming to Christ is the evidence that He indeed loves us and chose us in Christ. God's purposes never fail. But there is one more aspect to our having been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we need to consider that reaches beyond the sinner's justification and salvation. We need to know that this union with Christ will continue forever. Our bodies will fail and we will die. Indeed, the world as we know it will one day come to an end, but our union with Christ will continue forever. That which we apprehend by faith today will be in that day known by sight. In Revelation 22 we read, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. there they need no lamp nor light for the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And Paul writes to the Thessalonians, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so will God bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. Did you catch that? Even in death, our union with Christ continues. And, and Paul continues his instruction to the church at Thessalonica. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And his next line, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Knowing that our union with Christ perseveres and continues into death and beyond, knowing that we will always be with the Lord and in the Lord is to be for us a great comfort. Which brings us back to that first question from the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. The knowledge that we are not our own, that we have a union with Christ that is permanent and everlasting and places us firmly within the sovereign and mighty hands of our great God is the greatest comfort we could possibly know. Apart from union with Christ, there is no gospel. Therefore, we need to live in the light of this great truth. We need to know that we are safe, secure, and complete in Christ, and that apart from Christ, we can know none of these things. We have been chosen in Christ to the praise of the glory of His grace. We have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and we will remain in Christ for all eternity. This great truth should remind us daily of who we are. And as you picture, if you do, that our great God in heaven holding us securely in His arms, who's holding us? Our great God is. And He loves us, not because of anything that is worthy in us, but because of the perfectness of His only begotten Son. I don't want to picture me holding myself in eternity. It is a great comfort to know that it is God who holds us in His mighty hand. And while we are not privileged to peer into the eternal counsels of the Godhead, He has nonetheless placed eternity in our hearts. So we are therefore to rejoice and to do good in our lives. And we should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all, all of our labor. This is the gift of God. You know, and we have this 
great privilege day by day. We have a particular privilege even this, this Lord's Day as we gather for a church-wide fellowship. We do all things before the face of our God, and we should render everything we do and say unto Him. And as we gather with one another, we, we should experience, it should be our regular experience of a greater measure of joy in Christ. And when we see one another, we should remember that God has also placed His electing love upon all of those around us. As we interact with one another, we are to be reminded that we are not relating to temporary, insignificant creatures. But we are living in the context of eternal beings, which probably brings to mind for some of you that C.S. Lewis observation There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, who we work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Let us be those who choose everlasting splendors. May God grant us to see ourselves as He sees us and to therefore live our lives accordingly. May God help us to see Christ and know the comfort and joy of our union with Him. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Father in heaven, We thank you for the great truth of our union with Christ and of your love that is the very reason you have chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Help us, we pray, to believe and to live our lives in accordance with this knowledge and to do so to the praise of the glory of your grace. Help us to take the knowledge of the reality of our union with Christ deep into our hearts and by the operation of your Holy Spirit work salvation and sanctification in us, that at the last day we may know the pleasure of your satisfaction. Help us to love one another with godly love, knowing that our brothers and sisters are in Christ and that Christ is in them. Help us, we pray, for the glory of Christ and the beauty of His bride, the church. For we pray in His holy and victorious name. Amen.